many of you had heard of C.S. Lewis. He's one of the more famous Christians of recent decades. He wrote a classic book among Christians called Mere Christianity. There's this one little section right in the center of it where he describes two different types of love. The first is that glorious and intoxicating thing that we are talking about today when we talk about falling in love or being in love. It's, it's what we find celebrated in that beautiful series of poems that is in our Bible called the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. Right at the beginning we read, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. This is that type of love that we mean when we talk about falling in love or being in love. It's this passionate, romantic love, and it tastes better than wine. It's more intoxicating than wine. It's breathtaking and beautiful. It grips us, and it takes hold of us. And then at the end of Song of Solomon, we read these beautiful words. Set me as a seal upon your heart, the seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. This is poetic language right up there. Shakespeare, Andrew Marvel, great points to his point. Mister, if you just go down through the, the through the ages, this is great poetry about that incredible, powerful thing we call being in love. It can bring out the best in us. It can make us generous and tender and self-forgetful. But Lewis so perceptively writes that while being in love is a good thing, it is not possessing. There are many things below it, but there are also many things above it. You cannot make it the basis of a whole life. It's a noble feeling, but being in love is a feeling. And no feeling could be relied on to last in its full intensity. Knowledge can last. Principles can last. Habits can last. But feelings come and go. Yet, ceasing to be in love does not have to mean ceasing to love. Why? Because there's other types of love. And a particular type of love is what I would call faithful love. This type of love that's different than being in love. It's a type of love that Lewis describes as a deep unity that has three characteristics. Number one, it's maintained by the will. Number two, it's deliberately strengthened by your habits. And number three, in a Christian marriage, it is a type of love that is reinforced by the grace of God that both husband and wife can ask for and receive. So there's the wonderful feeling, the gift, the joy, the power of being in love. And then there's this other type of love, which is not merely a feeling. It's this deep unity that's maintained by the will, strengthened 
by habit, reinforced by God's grace. And you can have this second type of love, this faithful love, even in season when you do not feel in love. It's a different type of love. And it's at this point that Lewis gives us one of those exquisite little analogies that he's so gifted at. Being in love is not what the engine of marriage is run on. The engine of marriage runs on this quieter love, faithful love, romantic love, erotic love, falling in love. What we need in our society when we talk about being in love, the engine of marriage cannot run on that. And then Lewis says, that is merely the explosion that starts the engine of Why is this? Why is faithfulness the heart of man? And romantic love is not. Why is faithfulness at the very center of marriage, the fuel of marriage? Why is it erotic love, romantic love, being in love? Why is that not the heart of marriage? Why is faithfulness? Well, on the one hand, it's just common sense. The state of being in love cannot be relied upon the last forever. If anybody's married, they know that. Other than about three couples in our church who recently haven't discovered that. <laughs> Feelings can change in a moment. Desires can shift from one object to another at the speed of sight. There will come a moment in every marriage when you look across at that person and you think, Yikes! Yo, it's not me. How would you like to be saying this? You look across at that person and you no longer feel in love. I remember when Janelle told me that she didn't feel in love with me anymore. It crushed me. And if that is the basis of your marriage, it, your marriage will evaporate. So what happens when you lose that loving feeling, when the desire is satisfied and it no longer exists, when someone more desirable comes along? Marriage cannot be sustained by romantic love, that type of love that we are so obsessed with in our culture. That's one reason that can't be the heart of marriage. It's just illogical. This other type of love, faithful, or faithful. This is the heart of marriage. And I want to show you three primary places in Scripture where that claim is made. That the heart of a marriage is faithful. First of all, faithfulness is the heart of marriage because God created marriage. Marriage is not a product of culture. It's not a human invention. It's a divine institution invented by God, and it flows out of its very being, and like an artistic product, a painting, a sculpture, a song flows out of the artist, marriage flows out of God. It's marked by God's character. And so there is a natural order to marriage, a way of being married that is consistent with the nature of marriage, consistent with the nature of God. This is our passage that Joanna was reading today. I'm sorry. 
Exodus chapter 34. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 34. This is one of the foundational moments in the whole story of Scripture. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord, now, if you'll notice closely in your Bible, more than likely the word Lord there has a different type of typography. It, it might be in small caps or it might be italicized. In other words, it's not talking about the generic force of a higher power. It's talking about a particular God out of all of the nations that claim the God Jesus or whatever. You just go down the line. This is talking about the name of the Hebrew God. Lord, that particular God who passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now the context of this passage is a time of terrible unfaithfulness on the part of Israel. If you know the Bible, you know that right here, Israel is totally blown. They've totally betrayed the Lord. And in the midst of their radical adulterous betrayal of God. Moses hears this description of God. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There is no description of God that is echoed in the Bible more than this. This is the fundamental description of God in the Bible. Faithful, steadfast love is the heart of God. When we say God is love, it's this kind of love. See, the problem with saying God is love is you boot back into it whatever your current culture's predilections are about love. God is love is only accurate if you allow Scripture to define what type of love we're talking about. And it's this type of love, faithful merciful, slow to anger, abounding in that quality called steadfastness. The faithful God who created marriage calls men and women to show faithful love in their marriages. And this type of love, faithfulness, faithful love, is a beautiful love that can exist whether you are in love or out of love. I recently read a book on marriage by Christopher Ash. At one point, he talked about a Christian marriage course. Marriages are falling apart. Everybody's trying to help marriages. Churches are trying to help marriages. And he, and he talked about this one Christian course to help marriages. And it had an advertisement, a flyer. And the, the flyer described the marriage course in this way Relationships begin when we fall in love. Relationships end when we no longer feel in love. So love is central. But it is rarely fully understood. This course will show how you can each give and receive the love you need. It will show you how to keep romance permanently alive. So, <laughs> Ash says a truer advertisement for a Christian view of marriage would be this marriage begins when you publicly take vows, marriage ends when one of you dies. Faithfulness is central but it is rarely understood. 
This course will show you what faithful love is, how to be faithful through good times and bad times, no matter how you feel or the state of romance. It will show you how to keep faithfulness alive. Now that's a biblical view. Just doesn't sell them. The heart of marriage, the fuel that lasting, permanent, good marriages run on is faithfulness. Because God is faithful, and marriage is his artifact, his creation. So from the moment a man and a woman enter marriage, God calls them to steadily and persistently pursue faithfulness until death tears them apart. And if those of us who are married are to fulfill God's purpose in our marriage, then we must heed this call to faithful love. That's the first spread of scripture where we see that faithful love is the heart of marriage because marriage was made by God and faithfulness, faithful love, steadfast love is the center of God's character. Now, the second place in scripture where we see that faithfulness is the heart of marriage comes up in Malachi chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, turn to the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to find one and bring one to church for this reason. It's good to get in the habit of getting used to reading your Bible. Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 13. In the middle of a conversation, it says, And the second thing you do, talking about Israel, cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering you accept or accept it with favor from your hand. But you say, Why does he not, why does he not regard our offering? The answer, because the Lord was with us wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. That's the heart. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with the portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? God in the offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. It's actually a very complex passage. There's lots of argument about what it means. But what we see here is that what is going on is the people of Israel are complaining that God won't pay attention to their religion. And in verse 14, the prophet tells them why God does not pay attention to their religion. And the reason is because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and wife by covenant. You see that on one level, marriage is simply an agreement, a contract. It takes place between two people in our culture, in other cultures, between two families. In marriage, a man and a woman make a public agreement to be husband and wife. Malachi 2 says there's a whole other level, a whole other level to marriage. It says that the marriage ceremony is not merely a tradition. It's not merely this cute, elegant, beautiful marking of the occasion. 
The ceremony that takes place takes place in the presence of God. And the making of this covenant is witnessed to not only by friends, but by the almighty creator God of the universe himself. This means that the marriage vow that a bride and groom take, they take in the presence of God, not as an observer, not as an invited guest, but as a witness. And when two people promise to be husband and wife, God witnesses. He seals that promise. And he holds each of the parties responsible to keep their promise. The promises are made under his sanction. And if the parties break those promises, they are answerable to God. That is, don't even think about it. You're a fool because God will punish you. The reason God would not listen to the prayers of Israel in Malachi's day was that they had broken a covenant they had made with God as a witness. I doubt if they would have gotten very friendly reception if they had replied, we had to get divorced. We no longer love one another. The heart of marriage is faithfulness to a promise, not going with the ebbs and flows of romance. Now, romantic love, erotic love, desire, it is profoundly important. I don't need to diminish it. I don't need to talk. You know what? God gave us those abilities, those feelings. It's a gift. Just doesn't belong in the driver's seat of man. It's a gift. God made us. That, that's what Psalm Solomon is all about. It is a celebration of that kind of passionate, romantic, erotic love that grabs a hold of you and, and, it, and it controls you even more than wine can control you. In no way am I diminishing that. I'm just relocating our modern notion that the beating heart at the center of marriage is being in love is not only illogical, it's out of step with the brain of the universe. That is not how God, who made the universe, made marriage. The heart of marriage is another type of love. Faithful. Faithful love. One more place where we see this in Scripture. Turn two books to the right, to Mark. Skip past Matthew by Mark chapter 10. This passage that I read right before the sermon. Mark chapter 10. Without gospel reading, Jesus is being asked to weigh in on a debate that the Jews were having regarding divorce. They had begun to practice no-fault divorce. Easy, fast divorce. Very similar to our time. And they ask Jesus to weigh in because there's an argument if this is the best way to go. Now, that's what the culture's doing. And the religious leaders, some religious leaders, just like in our day, say, sure. Other religious leaders say, no, absolutely not. You should never get divorced. Divorce is always out of step. Well, I, in November, I'm going to come back and preach on this metaphor, particularly 
I'm going to preach on divorce and remarriage. And Jesus actually sides with neither of them. He cuts a third way to the center. But what I want you to see is how Jesus responds in relation to this notion I'm talking about. Mark chapter 10, verse 6. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, men shall leave his father and mother, and will pass to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And what I want to draw your attention this morning to is that Jesus is affirming an enormously important teaching in Scripture. It's this. At a wedding, something is created that did not exist before. Something actually happened. In Genesis, when it says, for this reason, man will leave his father, mother, and his wife, and become one flesh, what Jesus is saying is that's not a sentiment, that's a fact. It's not an eloquent description of some emotional sense. It is an ontological reality. Something is created at a wedding that did not exist prior to that moment. A man and a wife are transformed into a into a man and a woman are transformed into a husband and wife. A, a couple, two, are made one flesh. They are fused into a single organism. This is not magic, but it is a miracle. Why in a wedding? Because God said so. Just like our government says that on a particular occasion, when a particular person puts his hand on a particular book and says a particular set of phrases, he actually becomes president. Why? Because we as a group in the nation have determined that in all of those things, when that happens, a president is made. Before that, he's not. You could say those words right now, right here, and off on your own, you don't do anything. But there's a, whole, there's a set of laws in our country that changes reality. God has made a set of laws in this universe that when two people make public vows to be husband and wife, something miraculous happens. The God of the universe, this is far bigger than the courthouse. He makes a change in the status and the reality of those two people. <coughs> the wedding, God joins you together. It is his act, not yours. It is the Christian position that this applies to every married couple without exception unless you were inappropriately married, like you were already married to somebody else, something like that. It doesn't matter whether you've been married in a church or not, or in a Christian culture or not. It doesn't, wherever a couple has agreed publicly They've made promises to take one another as husband and wife. God, in that moment, joins them together. They might be of a different religion or no religion. They may or may not be what we judge compatible. The marriage may even be a marriage of convenience. But if they publicly consent to be married, they are joined by God. That's the way God set this thing up. 
That's the Christian position. A second caveat, this joining together is not something that you grow into. It doesn't gradually occur over time. It's not like the glue that slowly sets under the right conditions. You don't wake up one day and say, you know what, I don't think this was a real marriage after all. No. It happens when the vows are made. Now this gives us an insight into why faithfulness is the heart of marriage. It's a remarkable thing that God would allow us to actually tear something apart that he put together. But he does. But when we do divorce, it is a tearing apart of something God put together. And if we do, outside of some very specific circumstance, if we break a marriage, God is against us. He will stand by his commitment at the wedding. Jesus says that we must not pull apart what God is joined together. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin, but it is a very serious sin. And those who are the active agents in the dissolution of a marriage, in breaking a marriage apart, should repent. So what we learn as Christians to do with all of our sins. We should humble ourselves before God, repent, seek His forgiveness, the forgiveness that is only available through Jesus Christ. No one should tear a marriage apart. Moms and dads, woe to you if you put the kind of pressure on the wedding, the marriage of your children, and tear them. Bosses, if you put the kind of pressure on your employees that tears at the fabric of a marriage, woe to you. Friends, on vacation together, if you, if you seductively go after your friend's spouse, woe to you. Neither the husband, nor the wife, nor boss, nor friend, nor mom, or dad should ever Terror of marriage. Instead, we must do all that we can do to nourish and build up our marriages because they are unions made by God. So pleasure and delight, they deepen and they enrich a marriage, but they cannot be its foundation. Um, C.S. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in prison. He was about to be murdered by the Nazi regime. His niece is marrying his best friend, Eberhard Getke, marrying Renata. He writes a sermon, they smuggle it out of prison, they read it at the wedding. Such a romantic thought, right? In that, he has this great section where he says, from now on, your love will not sustain your marriage. It is your marriage that will sustain your love. He's talking about this type of love, romantic love. That romantic love is the flower that will bloom in the structure of a marriage. Now, not next week, but the week after, I'm going to start a six-week series on sex. Why did God give us sex? Sex in the life of the seed. Sex in the life of Mary Adultery sexuality, being content with your sexual, I'm going to 
we're going to explore everything, rock club. And, and there's plans made so the children can explore everything. <laughs> but it started to. Desire is profoundly important, but it is not the basis of marriage. I encourage you. Think about the radically, the radical implication this has for your life if you're married and if you're single. What this means is that we need to become the kind of people who can be faithful. See, what we need is education, not on how to spice up the marriage, but on how to become people whose character chooses faithfulness. That'll spice up the matter. Let me give you three aspects of faithful love that I think all of us, if we're single, you can take this and you can practice becoming this kind of person because you need it because faithful love belongs in other parts of your, your life. And as married people, this is what you need to pursue. Three aspects of faithful love. Number one, forgiving, forgiving. Faithful love is giving. Number two, it is forgiving. And number three, it is persevering. Number one, faithful love is giving. What do I mean? Well, if you're married, I mean that faithful love gives exclusive sexuality to your spouse. Faithful love gives sexual exclusivity to your spouse. You don't flirt with others. You don't give your sexual your sexual being to other people. I mean that faithful love gives and serves your spouse in those practical ways that your spouse needs to be served. Faithful love gives the emotional kindness that a spouse or a friend needs. Faithful love is giving. It's not passive. It, 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 it's not like the little puppy that just takes whatever. But faithful love is assertive, it's giving, it's not bold. When a husband and wife are fighting, faithful love aggressively steps into the spiral of anger and extends height. It doesn't wait. Number two, faithful love is forgiving. Faithful love is marked by forgiveness. This is Exodus 34, right? The Lord, the Lord, merciful, kind, forgiving, he's forgiving. The Bible tells so many stories of marriages, both good ones and bad ones, from Adam and Eve, through Abraham and Sarah, and David and Bathsheba, and countless others, and all of them, in one way or another, are dysfunctional. Faithful love is forgiveness. Patience. It shows forbearance towards the other when they fail to give us what they promised in their marriage life. To say that the heart of marriage is faithful love means that a husband and wife must learn to live together in forgiveness. Because without forgiveness, no human friendship, no human relationship can survive. If I haven't ever forgiven you, it's only because we're not close enough for you to say it. If you've never forgiven me, it's not because you love me better than somebody else. It's just because you haven't been around me long enough for me to sit against you or, hey, you're just holding out. Don't insist on your rights. 
Don't blame each other. Don't judge. Don't condemn. Don't fault with each other, but accept each other as you are and forgive each other. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean you sweep it under the rug. You know how hard it is to forgive? To forgive somebody means you pronounce what they did as wrong. Forgiveness implies judgment. For Jesse to forgive me means to, when Jesse says, Leary, I forgive you for action, you know what she's just done? She's just said what I didn't need forgiveness. She has simultaneously judged me and released me. That's biblical forgiveness. Number three, we need to become people who persevere. Faithful love is a persevering love. It's marked by perseverance. Everyone who has been married in the church has had a solid public promise to stick it out until death alone. There are situations that are very complex. I'm not going to talk about those now. If you need to talk about one of those situations, come and talk to me, please. If there's a poor uh, abuse, if there's abandonment, if there's adulterous affairs, please, you need to talk to somebody. The heart of married love is faithfulness, is perseverance. We're only close with this. Marriage is a gift that God gives the world. It is a gift that God gives to single people, and it is a gift that God gives to married people. It's a gift designed not only for the benefit of married people, it is designed to tell the story, a story about God's relationship with us. God makes covenant promises to us, and he keeps them without fail, and he has given us marriages so that we can see a living, breathing, flesh and blood example of what our relationship with God is like. He makes covenant promises to his people to be their bridegroom. And he keeps the promises he made. We saw this in Exodus. We see it in Hosea beautifully portrayed. He keeps his promises in the teeth of opposition, and he keeps his promises in the face of faithlessness. The story of the Bible is a story of one utterly faithful spouse and one persistently faithless bride. It's a story which shows at the same time the misery of adultery and the wonder, the costly wonder of faithfulness. Now, every person who struggles with a difficult marriage, you need to enter into the pain and persistence of God as He Himself marriage to an unfaithful spouse. Earlier, that was read from Revelation chapter 21. I think that would be my favorite passage in the Bible. It's one of the central affirmations of Scripture. That this world will end in a way that leads to a marriage. Marriage in which every vestige of tragedy and sorrow is removed. A wedding, as you so uniquely heard this morning, without tears, without death, without mourning, 
without pain. Marriages in this room, they either will be or they already are marked by loss, betrayal, tear, difficulty. That does not mean the marriages in this room have to result in tragedy. Put your faith in the husband of the church. Look forward with hope to the final and perfect way. If you are in a miserable marriage, look forward to the perfect way. If you are suffering the loneliness of a bad marriage or the loneliness of not being married, look forward to the great marriage that will not be like where there will be no sorrow, no tears, no suffering. The marriages in this church, if we will embody that, we will become a sign and a foretaste to others in this church and to this world of that marriage that is to come. Let's pray.